film directors. I've done a couple political books. Um, I've written biographies of uh, Frank Capra and uh, John Ford and, and Steven Spielberg. And I've done critical studies now of Ernst Lubitsch and Billy Wilder. And earlier I did uh, one on Orson Welles. I did two other books on Welles of different kinds. And I did a critical study of John Ford with Michael Willington. So I've been, you know, studying American film for a long time. And recently, Billy Wilder and Lubitsch, uh, they're both, uh, they've worked in Germany. Lubitsch is German. Uh, Wilder came from the Austro-Hungarian Empire, but they had a similar background in many ways. And then they came to Hollywood. So it's a, uh, it was an interesting challenge to learn more about um, culture in Germany and and uh, various parts of Europe. So that was really fun. And Wilder has been a, a favorite of mine for more than 50 years, well, actually way back to Some Like It Hot, which is 1959, was a big uh, eye-opener for me. I, I call him my sex education teacher. <laughs> I was a very repressed Catholic kid, and I saw that, and um, Irma LaDuce uh, was another one that really opened my eyes very wide and uh, uh, sort of helped change my life. And... Uh, I've been writing about Wilder since 1970. Mike Wilmington, I did a piece called The Private Life of Billy Wilder, which was a career overview for Film Quarterly. And I've been interviewing him for a long time. Uh, I, I went on the set of the front page in 1974 and interviewed him and his collaborators. And then I interviewed him several times over the years. And so I got to know him pretty well. And uh, a lot of that is in the book. And I did some new interviews, but it's a, it's a critical study of his work from... Uh, way back in Vienna, he started as a newspaper reporter and magazine writer, and then he did the same in Berlin, and then he became a screenwriter, and um, I wanted to study, you know, his journalism relates to his films in many ways, and not much has been written about it. Uh, finally, there was a book published in English of some of his uh, journalism, but there are two books in uh, in German uh, of his journalism that have more things in them. Uh, and then his early screenwriting in Germany wasn't very well known, uh, and uh, even his early screenwriting in Hollywood before he became famous, uh, most people haven't seen those films, so it was really fascinating. One reason I choose to do a book, uh, there are a couple of reasons. One is I get sort of angry about something, <laughs> something that's false or uh, a subject of misconception. I think Wilder for all his eminence and um, uh, you know fan following, he's misunderstood in many ways as a cynic and uh, misogynist, and and I don't think that's an accurate portrait. We can talk about that. But also, I didn't like the fact that he was um, unable to make a film for the last twenty-one years of his life. He was in internal exile in Hollywood, rejected by Hollywood, supposedly for being old-fashioned which really bothered me. So um, those were, you know, and then I just wanted to see all the films, like with Lubitsch. Uh, to see his films, I had to go to Germany, see a lot of them. Some have never come to America. Some have popped up on YouTube since then. And Wilder, um, I, had, I went to Germany, and that's that's part of the fun of writing a book to research, and then the hard part is the writing of the book. Oh, yes. Um, uh some of the things you're talking about in, in your decision to write about Wilder apply to biography too. That is that sense of either wanting to sort of redeem someone who's been misunderstood 
Uh, I don't think we really need to talk about resurrecting Wilder because he hasn't gone away. People still watch his films. He's still yeah. recognized as an important director. So you're not bringing him out of obscurity, but you are you are engaging in a kind of restoration in a way. Uh, and as I was reading your book, I know you don't consider it a, consider it a biography, but to me, I think as I said to you in an email, if you took the biographical uh, knowledge and the portions of your uh, portions of your book out of the book, uh, it would be a much drier, narrower in scope book. It seems to me. In other words, even your reading of the films, your interpretation of him as a filmmaker, is so grounded in your understanding of his background in Germany, of what it was like to first come to Hollywood, not knowing the language very well. Uh, looking for a collaborator. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that, about sort of his journey to Hollywood. Sure. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, critical study, which is not totally was totally understood by people, even some publishers I've found, um, is really approaching the work primarily. And, you know, certain uh, people um, have colorful lives and, and, and they talk about their films and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And then there are directors like John Ford who never really wanted to talk about his work. He wanted you to see it for yourself and understand it. So when I wrote my biography of Ford, um, it, it's a biography, but also I had to re, reinterpret his work because that's where his uh, personality comes through most uh, openly, his emotions and his feelings and beliefs. Um, they didn't come through in interviews or, or his, you know, personal talking to people. But I, uh, you know, I combined both. Those are called critical biographies, the Ford and Capra and Spielberg books. Um, you know, you're interested in the artist as a person, but we're we're mostly interested in the artist because he or she is, you know, a good filmmaker. And um, so, with somebody like Lubitscher Wilder, uh, you really need to know them and where they came from, you know, the social context. Uh, Goethe wrote that uh, to understand a poet, you must go onto the poet's land. And literally true, you know, I, I, I tromp around like with Spielberg. He grew up in five places, so I had to study five different uh, cities and neighborhoods and interview people there, and that was really interesting in different social contexts and how it affected the person. And um, and then you, you weave that in with the work, and they're mutually reinforcing. But sometimes the work, as Billy Wilder had to do in Germany, he had to work on projects that were not particularly congenial to him. And also when he first came to Hollywood, he was assigned to some projects that were kind of bizarre that he didn't care much about. And then he got more control over his work. And all 25 films that he directed are available on DVD, which is really terrific. But a lot of those early films are really hard to find. But um, the more you know about the artist as a person, you can tie that in with the work. And that's that's what we care about the most, even though some people's lives are very colorful, you know. Yeah, I think that's right. I think it's... it's um, it's especially with a critical work, the, the kind of yours is, it's it's going into that work, of course, uh, into the film in a great deal of depth. And in Wilder's case, for instance, you're, you you deal with a criticism about him, and you've you mentioned this already, already this sort of uh, reputation that he has of being a cynic. Um, if you look at a film like, some like at Hot, for example, 
you've got cynical characters in there, but I don't see how you could say that was a film that no. was directed by a cynic. No, no especially it's all wrong, when you really. Yeah. I once unthinkingly in an interview with him referred to him as cynical and he said uh, uh, but if I'm cynical what adjective do you have for peck and pop pictures I thought that was a great retort <laughs> and then I kind of apologized I said well cynical is just another word for realistic isn't it and he said yeah you know, every play by Ibsen was cynical right every play by Strindberg was cynical and uh, what it is is just a, a very clear, uh, unblinking, unsentimental view of human nature, which is mistaken for cynicism. Cynicism really means you, you know you really you don't care about people or you don't care about things, and, and you're just a you know nasty guy. But he's not like that at all. He's uh, as I. L. Diamond is writing collaborator in later years. Said he's a disappointed romantic, and I think that's true. You see that all through Some Like It Hot, which I've been rewatching because I'm going to be recording the audio commentary, and it's such an emotional film, and it's really about Tony Curtis, who's a cad. Yeah. And he is a cynic toward women. He treats women badly, and he learns to be a mensch, uh, the, taking the work from the apartment. Um, Jack Lemmon's character becomes a mensch by standing up for what's right and for himself and by taking care of Shirley MacLaine and helping rescue her from the truly cynical boss who exploits her, that's, cyn that's cynical behavior. The characters can be cynical, but quite often the, the underpinning of a Wilder film is somebody or a couple who are very jaded and very, um, have, as Marilyn Monroe sings in Some Like It Up, I'm through with love, I've stocked my heart with icy frigid air. Uh, you know, she's gotten to the point <laughs> where she thinks, you know, she's tired of being mistreated by men, so she's going to retreat into herself. And a lot of Wilder characters do that. There's a self-protective shell, which he also had, because he had had kind of a tough life, and he went through the same year parts of life, and he suffered from anti-Semitic pers uh, uh, persecution in, in Vienna and, and, and Berlin. And so he had a hard shell, and uh, Wilder Matthau defined that to me as... Um, witty repartee was Billy's shield. And so it's kind of hard to get, you know, I mean, I, when I interviewed him, I, I got a lot of frank comments from him, but he had this veneer of wisecracking news and tremendous wit, and that covered his emotions to some extent. But they would come through sometimes when you'd ask him about the right thing, and his films are full of emotion and, and, and caring and compassion toward his characters, and, and he, he portrays some really... Uh, tough characters, and some of them are irredeemable, like uh, Barbara Stanwyck in Devil Indemnity. Or... But even Kirk Douglas in Ace in the Hole, who's a real heel newspaper man who keeps a man buried in a cave to get a story. And when the man is dying, Douglas gets very guilty and, and basically allows himself to be killed to punish himself. And so there's even a, a total heel like that, you know, has a human side that comes out as the film develops, that's, that's the tragic progression of a character. You know, you see that in classical tragedy. So Wilder, to me, is not a cynic at all. He's, he's a romantic, and he, he admitted that on a few occasions, and Jack Lemmon said he's, he's really a softy at heart. You know, I mean, he's a warm-hearted guy, but he concealed it very uh, cleverly. And, and, and a lot of the books on Wilder dwell so much on his wisecracks, which are wonderful, that they kind of obscure the the feelings behind the man and the work, you know? Yeah, well, I imagine he had to develop that uh, tough 
even wise guy exterior in a town like Hollywood, given the different kinds of producers and Hollywood moguls and so on that he had to deal with, it is a form of a kind of protection, I guess. Yeah, you you know, anybody who works in Hollywood for a long time, you know, has to be a tough guy. And John Ford is the classic example. And But yeah, Ford was a deeply emotional guy, and you could tell that from his films and sometimes in person I interviewed him. And he was quite sarcastic and difficult, but there were moments of emotion and warmth that came through. But Wilder had that veneer back in uh, Germany. Paul Kohner, who became a famous uh, agent, was, uh, he knew Wilder in Berlin, and he was a producer of his first film, and he said Billy had been through everything. You got the feeling there is a guy who had been through everything, even in his young years, you know, and and he was, uh, had a real tough facade back then, and uh, newspaper people tend to get like that. I mean, I was, I've been a uh, journalist since 1960, and it's kind of like doctors and nurses when you operate on somebody you can't show emotions, you can't cry when you're operating on somebody you have. So they often make wisecracks, like in the MASH show and the movie. And the same in journalism, there's a terrible cynicism. and you know, But some, it's self-protective. I found that as a journalist. I, I would find myself getting very emotional every day. I'd open the paper and there'd be some horrible crime or something. And you know, you can't allow yourself to be overwhelmed all the time by the things you learn and, and then if you interview people or go to a scene of a disaster or something you can't be standing there crying you have to have a f- tough facade and so there's a lot of gallows humor that goes on in newspaper offices and hospitals for example and Wilder is in that vein. Yeah very much so. Now the, now the Billy Wilder you described, the director he sounds very contemporary to me. He doesn't sound at all old-fashioned so what happened to those last 20 years? Well, yeah, I mean, when, when you see his films today, they seem remarkably fresh, as you say. Uh, and um, his view of women, for example, is, is, is really advanced. And Molly Haskell, uh, who's a terrific historian of uh, women in film and other things, she gave me a very nice uh, blurb from my book, and she said that uh, it has a fresh and original take on the women in his films. And, and uh uh, she she thought his lack of sentimentality made him seem very modern, you know, because you look at a lot of old Hollywood films that are, you know, often good, but they tend to be sentimental about human nature and about women in particular, and they divide women into Madonnas or horrors quite often. But Wilder sees both sides in all human beings. You know, we all have flaws. And we all have some strengths. And there are a lot of good women in his films, people he admires, that people don't talk about much, but I have a whole section on that. Um, but, you know, he seems uh, to deal with issues in a, a very sophisticated, modern way and very knowing. And um, you know, what happened in his later life was, you know, he was always pushing the envelope of censorship. And I call him the bull in the china shop of American Puritanism. <laughs> in the 40s and 50s, he was pushing boundaries, some like it hot, really uh, helped push American films toward the breaking of the code, which happened in the next decade, but he was ahead of the time, and the apartment in his time was considered very uh, risque. You know, it seems very realistic today, but some people were offended by it, and Kiss Me Stupid caused a huge uproar, and a few years later, it got a PG rating, you know, and it's uh, it's a terrific film. It's about small-town hypocrisy, but he doesn't pull any punches. But uh, what happened was when the code collapsed in, in 66, 67, 
uh, anything went, basically. You could say or show almost anything on the screen, violence and sex and profanity. And Wilder wasn't interested in that. He came from the Hollywood tradition of uh, being subtle and oblique. Lubitsch was his uh, mentor, and Lubitsch was extremely subtle and sophisticated. He didn't show things uh, directly. It was often oblique. And it's more subtle and very and fun and and suggestive, and it puts it in your mind more than on the screen. So Lubitsch wouldn't show two naked people rolling around in bed. It would be kind of boring to him. And uh, Wilder was like that too. For uh, but he pushed pushed the envelope further because he he was that kind of guy. But also he was in a later period where censorship was loosening in the fifties. But once it all collapsed, he wasn't interested in making films like say Midnight Cowboy or. Uh, or, you know, even the porno films that were popular in the 70s, like Deep Throat and Behind the Green Door. He was he went the opposite direction, and his latent romanticism came to the foreground in films like um, The Private Life of Sherlock Holmes, which is a lovely, very romantic film but about a very jaded man who finds love in, in a in a difficult way. And then he made Avanti, which is a beautiful romantic comedy, but it's about two uh, two uh, people who reenact the romantic relationship of their dead parents, which was not a theme that the audience wanted to see in 1972. Romanticism, I remember this well, was considered a dirty word if people wanted to insult you. They'd say, you're, you're romantic. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, you're supposed to be uh, into free love and just let it all hang out and everything. And romanticism was suspect, and he was going further in that direction, partly out of defiance, but that's what he told me. He said, I couldn't, he said, you know, Shampoo is a good film, but I couldn't make a film like that because I couldn't go to Julie Christie and say, here's the dialogue for tomorrow, you know, <laughs> or, or The Exorcist. He said, you know, how would you, he said, I admire Friedkin for being able to shoot a scene where an eight-year-old girl comes into a fancy dinner party and pees on the floor, you know, he said, but I wouldn't know where to put the camera. Yeah. <laughs> and he said, if you tried, it would be very phony. And there were a few older directors who tried to be hip. And it's really embarrassing, for example, in the work of Otto Preminger, who is Wilder's contemporary in Vienna. His films like Skidoo are disastrous because yeah. he was trying to be, you know, pandering to the the youth audience. He didn't know how. It just didn't seem right. Yeah. So Wilder stuck it out, but he had lost his audience pretty much by 1970, and uh, that was part of the problem he had. But those later films are very fascinating and uh, beautiful and extremely romantic. But also they have his, his jaded side in them. Yeah, I think I think that's one of the great things about your book is that I think those later films people don't know as well, uh, and therefore uh, your book really does does a service. Yeah, the perceptiveness in dealing with those films, I think, is is really important. Thank you. I hope that it does get people to go back and see Private Life of Sherlock Holmes, which I reviewed at the time and I loved it, but it didn't do well to box office. And Avani is just a terrific film. Uh, I showed that to some friends recently. I thought they'd like it, and they didn't like it. I mean, you know, it's kind of hard to know what people will go for. But uh, Fedora is another film that's very interesting. That's a kind of a mixed bag because he had great trouble with Mark Keller, who was the star who was miscast and not very good but even her badness uh, is kind of expressive in a way because she plays a character who's really not a competent actress and somehow it works <laughs> but it's a very moving film and it's reflections on the changes in the film business. It's a very dark film my friend Bill Crone uh, the Hollywood editor of Coyote Cinema described it to me as Billy 
Wilder tap dancing on the grave of Hollywood, which I thought was a great phrase. It sort of captures his later work. You know, he he and Diamond realized they had lost their audience, and <clears throat> in some ways it depressed them. But they just kept doing the kind of films that they liked. And um, Dave Kerr pointed out in his review of Fedora that Wilder is speaking to some audience in the future when people might understand things better. Maybe we've got to that point. Uh, as you say this, I'm thinking of your book's title, Dancing on the Edge. Maybe you want to say something about that. Yeah, I was reading a book by Peter Gay, who's a good historian of Weimar, Germany, where Wilder lived. And they had great cultural ferment and turmoil, political turmoil. And it was a you know very exciting time, but Nazism was starting to build up its ugly head, and Wilder had to flee. But um, he had a phrase similar to that. But Wilder's always been on the edge of things, uh, you know, the edge of the different sides of human nature, for example. We all have, you know, the self-destructive side or the cruel side, and we all have compassionate sides. So he's on the edge of that, but he's also on the edge of social problems. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I think... Um, Gay or somebody else wrote about dancing on the edge of a volcano, which was what <laughs> artists were doing in that period. And Wilder kind of continued doing that throughout his life. He was always kind of a exile at heart, and he always had the sense of society is precarious and human nature is dangerous. And uh, but he was a dancer in his youth too. I mean, he's a very stylish guy. His films are very elegant, and stylish, and funny and witty, and so that kind of balances the. Uh, the dark side, and he was a uh, tea dancer, as they called it, Eintanzer, in Germany. Um, in, in the late 20s, he wrote a wonderful series called Waiter, Bring Me a Dancer, which is a four-part series about being a tea dancer at, at a Berlin hotel where older ladies and sometimes younger ladies would dance with these guys who were very elegantly dressed and everything, and these men would get tips, and so they had to kind of be super charming and nice and it was a tough job and he writes about all the role playing that goes on it's like a billy wilder movie It'd be a terrific film if somebody would film it and um he, he sometimes said he he uh took the job just so he could write about it but he admitted to me that he, he actually was really struggling at that time as a freelance writer and he he just took that job because some friends of his who were dancers said there's that job available so he did that for a while and then and then he had the idea of writing uh, a series about it. So that was the true sequence. So he had that experience, and it's it's kind of a quasi-gigolo role, and there are a lot of gigolos in his films um, who are kind of uh, deadened emotionally, but they have to go through the romantic facade for money or for survival. You know, Joe Gillis and some like uh, Sunset Boulevard is a classic example, and that's part of the dilemma that he explores over and over again in his films. There's a, there's a still uh, from some like, ah, maybe more than one, one I'm familiar with, where Wilder is dancing with Jack Lemmon or showing him how the dance is going to go in some like it hot. Yeah, yeah, he was showing him that tango that Lemmon and his female guys does with um, Joey Brown, which is one of the highlights of the film. And Wilder was a really good ballroom dancer, and he, and, he had a girlfriend in the 20s, and they would teach people give private lessons in dancing too. And he was really good at things like the Charleston, you know, the dances, popular dances at the time. He loved jazz. He loved American music. He loved popular music throughout his career. 
he uses music wonderfully in his films. And um, he, one thing I found that was sort of surprising is that Wilder made a lot of semi-musical films. Um, in Germany, they had this kind of peculiar genre where they uh, popular films would often mix in a lot of songs. And um, some of them were inane and some were pretty good. But it was kind of a struggle for the screenwriters to make them blend with the story. But then when he came to Hollywood, he was kind of typecast for a while as a German uh, operetta writer. And so he did some musical films in the 30s. And then even in his, uh, you know, his directing period in Hollywood, he, he did a lot of films that have a lot of musical content. Sometimes a drama like Foreign Affair has a whole strain of uh, terrific songs by Frederick Hollander that Mar Marlena Dietrich sings, and she's a cabaret entertainer. And Kiss Me Stupid is about two songwriters, so there's a lot of music in there, and Dean Martin is a singer. And, and Some Like It Hot is a quasi-musical. It's uh, kind of a catalog of some of the best uh, pop songs of the 20s. And, and so he had a you know, a, a kind of a consistent run of semi-musical films in, in, uh, throughout his career, and that's something people have kind of neglected. So that goes along with the old dancer uh, image of Billy Wilder. Yeah, yes, it does. Now, there's a question I have to ask you, especially since the title of this uh, podcast is A Life in Biography, and I think I know the answer, Joe, but I'm going to ask it so that the biographers who are listening can, can hear this as well. How come you aren't doing biographies? Well, yeah, I wrote a book uh, called Frankly, Unmasking Frank Capra, which uh, you very kindly uh, appreciated uh, as a biographer. You understood uh, it's a tough racket. I mean, it's great fun. I love writing biographies, but they're they're often difficult because people give you a hard time, you know, families and the subjects sometimes if they're living. And, you know, getting the papers is sometimes difficult. Um, Henry James wrote the Aspirin Papers all about that kind of dilemma, which is terrific. And um, the Capra book was just a nightmare. I had four years of legal battle to get that out with Capra's archivist, Janine Basinger, and, and my own editor, Bob Gottlieb, the famous editor at Knopf, were both trying to stop the book and or neuter the book, and I had to fight and fight and fight to get that out, and I had to switch publishers. It was just terribly draining psychologically and uh, economically and physically. And, but I felt triumphant that I got the book out, but I wrote a long book going through all the Kafka-esque uh, details of that experience. And uh, I've written really three big biographies, the one on Ford and the one on Spielberg. And um, those two weren't as hard to do as the Capra book. Nothing could be harder. But the Ford book took 30-some oh, 30 years. It was a hard book to write. I mean, I, you know, I, I work on books for a long time, but I do other ones along the way, but Ford was a tough nut to crack because he's so complex and it took me a long time to figure out how to write about him. And there's so much to research. And then Spielberg, in some ways, was the easiest. He was the most cooperative in some ways. He uh, he wouldn't give me an interview because he says he's saving it for his autobiography. We'll see if he ever does that. But um, he, uh, he didn't stand in my way. And if people called his office and said, should we talk to McBride? They would be told I was kosher, which I thought was nice. But he told his mother not to talk to me, for example, because your mother knows all the dirt about you, I guess, you know, what you have under your bed. But I did interview his father. He didn't know he was going to do that. But the father, Arnold, who's a wonderful man, computer genius, gave me a terrific interview, uh, a lot about the family history. It was really invaluable. 
And I got to, you know, I get a sense more of the family dynamics, which are very important and different from what people had known. And, but uh, these books are very expensive, you know, because the cost, as you know, uh, traveling around, going to archives, going to different places and researching, it takes a long time. It's a full-time job. And, and then the uh, physical labor, just lifting all the heavy boxes and <laughs> going from one place to another. And so I just decided I couldn't afford to do them anymore. They don't sell that, that well, at least film biographies. Uh, I realized with Spielberg, I didn't write it because I was going for popularity, but I thought, well, here's a guy who's the most popular film director in the world and should probably sell pretty well. But that didn't sell terribly well either, and neither did the Ford or Capra books. It got, they were praised by people who care, and they were you know, read by a lot of people who liked them, and I keep running into people. When I wrote the Ford book, strangely enough, I've done two on him. When I did the critical study with Mike Wellington, both times Ford was in eclipse, he was um, not critically fashionable. And, and so when I wrote the Ford biography, I actually thought nobody's going to read this book. I had this strange feeling like I'm just writing it in a vacuum. And so I just decided I'm just going to please myself and write exactly what I want and be very self-indulgent and, you know, write pages on something that I, I was interested in. And then to my surprise, I keep running into people who like that book a lot. Um, you know, you don't know who's reading your book, but it doesn't amount to a lot of sales. And so uh, the money doesn't justify the, the work. And, and I go into deep financial hole every time I do a biography, and I really can't afford to do that anymore. Yeah. After the Ford book, I decided I can't do this anymore. And it's kind of sad because, you know, I would like to you know, it's very challenging and inspiring to write a biography, but critical studies, I, I shifted into that. I, I started doing that when I began writing film books, and so I've gone back to my roots, and I find that very stimulating. It's, it's just as much fun in some ways. The only thing that's different is you don't get to go traveling around and meeting a lot of fascinating people. Like with Spielberg, I interviewed 327 people, and it was great fun meeting all these people and talking to them. And I, you know, as an old journalist, I just love talking to new people and hearing their stories and Capra. I've I met a lot of amazing people, right. uh, but, um, you know, you don't do that as much. I did a few interviews for the Wilder book to fill in things that were important that I needed to know. But, uh, aside from that, it's, it's very lively and stimulating. And I, you know, I went to Germany, as I said, to study both Wilder and, Lubitsch, and uh, it's an adventure in its own way. It's a different kind of adventure, but I, I, I like doing both. Uh, but biographies, I just can't do anymore. Well, it's, it's understandable. A couple of things you said, I think that many biographers understand. Uh, sales. Um, it's very difficult to make back even what you spend on the book. Um, yeah. Very... yeah, I spend a lot on these books. I mean, I, yeah. you know, it's, what happens is you get an advance and it's never enough for yeah. the amount of work. Because I you know, you could do a kind of sloppy book for the advance they give you, but it, I wouldn't do that. I, I really dot every uh, I and cross every T. And uh, to do that requires you pour your own money into it from other sources. Like when I did the Ford book, I can't believe I did this. Um, the last two years of very intense writing, I wrote 100 magazine articles mm. at the same time. I just can't believe that I did two a week. Yeah. And, you know, just to support the book, and I wrote a television show to support the book that I would have preferred not to have to do, but, um, you know, you pour your own money into it, and then it doesn't pay off uh, 
uh, you know, and unfortunately there aren't that many readers who care about film directors. And I, I sort of made the joke, it's sort of half serious, it was Spielberg. Uh, the people who like Spielberg don't read books, and the people who read books don't like Spielberg, you know. <laughs> kind of a catch-22. Uh, but yeah. there just isn't an audience for that. There may be more of an audience for books about movie stars, but I've never found a movie star interesting enough to write a biography of. I thought of Spencer Tracy, who came from my hometown and went to my high school. Yes. But somebody was doing one, and she never did it, and then somebody, James Curtis, did right. a good one on him, so mm. I didn't have to do it. But um, he would have been interesting, but I can't think of any other star that would be worth my time writing about. I think directors, especially writer-directors, have a lot more control over their work, you know, and stars kind of are at the mercy of projects that come along and and um, so a lot of the story is about their private lives I'm not that interested in digging into people's sex lives or things like that I, you know I go into that where it's relevant but it's not my main interest sure yeah well is there something I should have asked you Joe that I haven't asked you no I guess just what I'm doing next would be yeah what are you about. doing next usually, yeah, by, usually biographers really, uh, don't want to say but I guess it's different if you're doing a critical book What's uh, what's that? What's different? Uh, oh, I was going to say. Uh, often, when I ask biographers what your next book is, if they don't have a contract yet, they won't tell me. Oh well, yeah, <laughs> I, I keep it under under uh, the vest, you know, until I'm ready to talk about. It, till the book is kind of announced, I, I don't blab it around. But I've been very busy the last uh, few years, you know, even more so than when I was younger. And I've got a um, update of my Orson Welles book, Whatever Happened to Orson Welles, A Portrait of an Independent Career, which came out in 2006 from uh, Kentucky, um, University of Kentucky Press, and the um, University Press of Kentucky, I'm sorry. It's a, an unusual book because it's part memoir and part critical study. It, uh, I knew Wells for the last 15 years of his life, and I acted for five years in his film, The Other Side of the Wind, which finally came out in 2018. It took 48 years to come out. That's a whole... I mean, Josh Karp wrote a whole book about that. And my book has about a third of it is about making that film. And then I, I, what I did was I wanted to study why he became an independent filmmaker in his later years, totally independent of the studios and making films, literally home movies at his home, with his mostly with his own money. But I realized to do that, I had to go back to the very beginnings of his career. And I was inspired by my friend Douglas Gomery, who's a film scholar I went to college with, who said that Wells was always an independent filmmaker. But he briefly had the resources of major studios in the 40s, but then after that he, he more or less didn't. And I thought that was a good insight, so I had to kind of re-study his whole career, but I didn't want to write a humongous book because poor Simon Callow is writing, you know, a big biography of Wells. He's on volume four, I guess, now. And yes. You know, it's like Robert Caro spends his whole life writing about Lyndon Johnson. Of course, his Robert Moses book is a great, great book. Probably the best nonfiction book I've read, but um, I didn't want to spend 20, 30 years writing about Wells. It, it, it'd be almost impossible for one human being because Wells was all over the world and did so much. But anyway, I've updated this book with a new chapter on Other Side of the Wind, uh, the completion and and what it's like, and you know, analyzing it, and also his early film Too Much Johnson, which was made before Citizen Kane. 
resurfaced miraculously in a warehouse in Italy. And so I write about that as kind of a bookend to his career, those two films. Although he's still busy, even though he's been dead for a long time, because he left behind a lot of unfinished works, which people are still working on. And then I have a book on the Coen Brothers is coming out in March. Ah. Uh, the the Wells book will be out in January. The Coen Brothers book is called The Whole Dern Human Comedy, Life According to the Coen Brothers. And it's a critical study. It's shorter than my usual book. It's, uh, books. It's kind of uh, loose, uh, fun, short, kind of uh, essayistic book about their career. I, I love the Coen Brothers. I think they're... They're kind of the modern equivalent of Billy Wilder. Yes. They're very sardonic. They're very dark. They, they mix in daring ways uh, violence and comedy in, in ways that some people don't like, that it's controversial. So I'm, I'm doing what I do often is I defend them against their, their critics who are misguided in my view, although I don't like every Coen Brothers film, but I'm trying to set the record straight on who these guys are, why they do this, and why it's good that they mix genres. They're very versatile, like Billy Wilder, too, but they deal a lot with sexuality and relationships in a very modern way. And um, uh, I have a long chapter on their latest film, The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. Now they're not working together for a while. I don't know how long that will continue, but Joel Cohen just did The Tragedy of Macbeth. I'm looking forward to that. I haven't seen it yet, but um, Ethan is off writing plays. Ah. So that'll be out in March. So I'm looking forward to that. It's a fun book to so read. You're, I you're, hope people enjoy it. You're keeping busy. You're also teaching. Yeah, I teach full-time at San Francisco State University. I'm teaching a course on Lubitsch and Wilder right now, and screenwriting I always teach. And... Uh, I'm also teaching a course on how to write about cinema, and I'm using The Searchers, the John Ford classic, as the uh, object of study for the whole semester, and I'm having them read the novel by Alan LeMay, and a very good book by Glenn Frankel on the history behind the film and the making of the film, so we're really digging into one film. I've always wanted to teach a course on one film, so it's, it's really kind of lively and fun. I think the students are enjoying it. Fantastic. Listen, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. It's been great talking to you, and I, I really admire all you do, and, and you're such a prolific and knowledgeable biography. We could talk about your work for, for days. Well, well, thanks very much. I will I will get this uh, podcast processed and send a link to you so that the whole world can know. Yeah, thank you. Um, I really appreciate it, and thanks for letting me mention those two upcoming books. Oh, sure. Anytime. Yeah. Well, it's great fun, Carl. Uh, when do you think it'll run? Um, I'm hoping within the next hour or so. Oh, wow, that's great. Yeah, so I will certainly send you a link. What's the name of your podcast again? Just called A Life in Biography. Great, great. Yeah. Well, it's really fun, and you asked great questions, and went very smoothly. And, and again, thank you for being flexible. I'm doing it on short notice, so that's really nice. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for the good review, too. That was really terrific. Yes, for... for People who don't know already, a review of uh, Joseph McBride's Dancing on the Edge, Billy Wilder, Dancing on the Edge, is in the San Francisco Chronicle, available online and soon in print. Thank you. Yeah, the book is um, just about to come out from Amazon and Columbia University Press. It was a little delayed because of COVID. Uh, you know, shipping is delayed in almost every business. So yeah. But it's been out in ebook for uh, two or three weeks. So you can you can read it that way, but it'll be out in hardcover very shortly. Very good.